Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Today we have an interview with cinematographer Matthew Libatique, who has worked with Darren Aronofsky since film school. Uh, they met at AFI in the front row on the first day, and he's going to tell us today a little bit about how they formed their partnership, how they shot the early films, and we're going to get more specifically into Requiem for a Dream with the 20th anniversary special release. He retimed it. There are special features. There's multiple commentary tracks. I am a person who learned a lot about filmmaking from commentary tracks, and I feel like that time period and the availability of those special features has sort of waned a bit, but they are such a great way to hear from filmmakers, just like this podcast is, um, because we talk to them and get their the full story and their full insights. But um, I'm excited about the re-release. I'm really excited for you to listen to him on this podcast because he is a, an extremely unique case. You know, he came around obviously during an exciting explosion of things that were happening in cinema in the 90s, but... Here's what's so amazing to me about him, and we talk about it in the podcast. He has remained edgy and relevant and cool. And I don't like throwing around that word like lightly, but his movies are cool. And he's kept that somehow as he's continued to work on the biggest budgets and the biggest projects. Uh, a lot of people you you find like it, the luster fades or the ability to stay connected to what people, what popular culture is doing and what what feels relevant uh, goes away. And for him, I'm just kind of amazed by the ability to continue to innovate and be uh, in the thick of it um, from, you know, going from shooting something like Pi, which is the ultimate DIY, like the, the OG DIY, um, to Iron Man, which launched essentially launched the whole Marvel verse thing um, to straight out of Compton, which is like doing, doing something uh, at a very high level that has to be cool and, and connected to a subculture. I'm just in awe of his career. His, his resume is absolutely, you know, it's as good as they get. Um, a star is born venom, Mother, just just going backwards. Noah, like tons of music videos, Cowboys and Aliens, Black Swan, uh, Kobe doing work. Like he does a bunch of Spike Lee stuff. Um, she Hate Me, um, Inside Man, um, and Requiem for a Dream, of course, which, you know, was a super innovative movie at the time. And we talk about in great detail here, like the processing and everything. And so... Look, uh, he is a fun guy to listen to. I really enjoyed hearing from him, so I hope you do as well. So it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You are, uh, you know, one of the great cinematographers, and uh, our community uh, loves cinematography pretty much more than anything else, <laughs> even though we're a filmmaking <laughs> site and podcast, this is absolutely 
our favorite topic and you've shot such a range of movies and uh, it's just great to have you. And of course, we're here because of the anniversary and the re-release of um, Requiem for a Dream, which we'll definitely get to. But I just wanted to start um, really at the beginning for you because I wanted to know what was the first sort of moment or inspiration or or what unlocked your interest in pursuing photography and cinematography and all of that? The shortest answer is probably is when I saw Do the Right Thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, That's pretty cool considering you later shot for Spike Lee so much. Yeah, believe me, that wasn't lost on me the first time I shot for Spike Lee. <laughs> sure. I was, um, uh, you know, I, I had to, I had put the fanboy away and uh, try to be a collaborator. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's harder than you'd think. <laughs> I, when you, so where did, how old were you when you saw it? I was, um, I believe I was 19, 20 years old, probably and, 19 years old. I saw Do the Right Thing, and um, I was in college. I, I, I'd studied a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I dabbled uh, in filmmaking. I actually shot some stuff in 16 millimeter. Um, I actually, you know, I, I started out, I did this the whole, I used to work at a Tower Records, and um, when I convinced a manager to let me shoot there after hours, so we closed at midnight, and uh I brought an Airy S in and I uh, rented a, a doorway dolly and I got an actor from the theater department and I wanted to, uh, the first film was called uh, Shoplifter because I had so much experience dealing with shoplifters there. <laughs> I did actually, you know, on like a three occasions I chased them through the parking lot. But um, Wow. And did you catch him and stop him? What happens when you chase No, my most successful um uh episode was when i was able to, they dropped some cds and i was able to uh pick one up on the run and hit the guy in the head <laughs> as he ran around the corner of another building <clears throat> did you at uh, least so, so you did retrieve that one cd i retrieved more than one he had to drop about 10 of them oh nice okay it was like that he was the most brazen i'd ever run into actually <laughs> he's just like a stack and he just hauled he just ran out and i had i was at the front desk at the time and i was the one guy that you know i was the one guy that had to chase him but um the other two occasions were not not as that was the most successful one he still got right um but so i was doing this uh i wanted to do this you know it was the height of mtv and i wanted to you know i had this uh fantasy that i was going to submit this series of films about um petty crime <laughs> nice yeah, and so and and you shot it on film, so you I were shot familiar 16, with yeah. what it was to shoot film. Like, was that a learning experience, or you already kind of knew? I know it was uh, it was a learning experience. I mean, I I knew photography, I taken photography classes in school too, and, um, but I didn't really have much experience in film. And you know, I actually um, the Aries has a uh, a motor on it that you can reverse, uh, which is handy if you know what you're doing. Um, I remember rolling a hundred foot load of film and um, wondering why it was lasting so long. It's because I had inadvertently put it to reverse, so I don't <laughs> expose a whole roll. Um, that was awesome. And then, uh, <laughs> what did it look like? Was it like, and you didn't find out? You obviously you developed it later. You looked at it and you were like, ah, oh, uh, that's what happened. That's why that roll <laughs> lasted so fucking long. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a learning experience, trial and error. Right. Oh, yeah, it's trial and error. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I like to think I've made a whole career out of making mistakes and uh, trying to repeat them again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because they turned out cool. And, in fact, we did repeat it in Requiem for a Dream. We, we Sarah Goldfarb looking at the red dress in the mirror. Uh, you know, right. That, that, that idea was born out of that mistake. 
Really? Wow. So you said like, you know what I did once as a mistake that we could do here? Was it something like that? Well, we had talked about it ahead of time. You know, sure. I, Darren knew that story because we met. In, I think I told him that story when we were in film school. But so, um, what got you to film school? Like seeing do the right thing, loving. Well, it, that's thinking. what I was gonna say. Is that you know, I, you know, when I was making that, uh, when I was shooting stuff, I never. Um, um, some of the people who were working with me, you know, you know, you're not really a director. You're more of a cinematographer. I'm like, I don't even sure. really know what a cinematographer is. I thought a director was a cinematographer. You know, at the time, I thought a filmmaker was a filmmaker is a filmmaker, right? Right. It's everybody just one guy does everything or girl, right? Yeah, I had no, I had no context of right. how large uh, an operation it was. You yeah. Because I wasn't a historian. I wasn't a film historian, you know? Yeah. Uh, Do the Right Thing was important to me not only uh, from sort of a, a an inspiration um, from a, just a social aspect, but it was also cultural and um, it opened up a world of possibilities. I mean, it literally made me feel like a person like myself could make films. Yeah. And then I, and you were I a New Yorker, right? You lived in, you're, you were living yeah. in New York. So it was, it was also like familiar culturally in that sense. Well, it was like, I was already in uh, California at the time. Oh, but, okay. okay. But I, but it did speak, you know, I've always had this um, coming from New York. I, I really just missed it. So, you know, you get the, you, I, it was just, it just hit me in every way, shape or form from different directions Yeah. Uh, as a film. But it really, what was impactful to me is that the messaging communicated yeah. to my age and yeah. the time, you know, the late eighties, early nineties was, um, I think it was just an explosion of creativity when it came to pop culture, you know, yes. from public enemy to, uh, to the pixies to, you know, yeah. um, do the right thing to Jim Jarmusch to, you know, Robert Rodriguez. I mean, you could, uh, Link Letter. You know, I mean, yeah, it was just an explosion. Yeah. And we'll get back to Public Enemy later, <laughs> and then yeah. music. We'll circle back there. But yeah, that. Um, yeah, totally. And you were uh, that. That all filtered in, and so you went to film school because you decided after that you were like, I want to know more about how this engine works, basically. Well, I just got inspired like, for the first yeah. time. You know, I, I um, look. I never really wanted a regular job. Like the the prospect of actually. Uh, working in an office or being in marketing it just I was just uh, instantly bored <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. by that idea you know I've only wanted to do two other things in my life and they were when I was in high school I, you know when I was a kid I wanted to be a baseball player when I was in high school I wanted to be a guitar player yeah. you know and um, cinematography came along and it seemed like do the right thing made it possible like it made it me made me feel like it was possible so it made me start to focus in being told that I didn't really give enough attention to the actors when I was making films. And then, you know, at the same time watching Do the Right Thing, I instantly became conscious of the light and the, um, the cinematography. I, yeah. I was able to uh, distinguish it all of a sudden. And uh, I just uh, instantly became an Ernest Dickerson fan. Yeah. And then, so you were at, went to AFI, right? I ended up going to AFI. Um, you know, I, I did one year after I graduated from undergrad. I, I did one year working for a film company. And my first uh, my first task working as an intern was to clean a, a garage, a storage garage, and scraping paint off the floor of a, a paint garage in Hollywood. I go, this is glamorous. I, this is going to be a long road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had those moments. <laughs> so, and then my next job was dropping off a couple of scripts to CAA. I'm like, great, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. And then um, I started to apply to film school, and um, I was shocked when I got a phone call. Um, on my giant cell phone that was about, you know, <laughs> massive thing. I was driving from the east side of L.A. From, uh, to the west side of L.A. 
and um, I get a call from Amy Vincent. And uh, I, you know, of course, I knew I, I, I didn't know her at the time. Actually, she said, hey, I, I see that you got into uh, I, you were um, you accepted to uh, AFI. Congratulations. I was wondering if you'd work on my cycle project or my uh, my thesis project. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you didn't even know you were accepted when you she's got the call. one that let me know i got into it and she With didn't an know she's like, oh my god i you don't know i go no i don't know but thank you so much for letting me know but you also got a gig essentially what was she offering what did she want you to do on her thesis was well, she uh she wanted i don't know she just wanted me to crew on it she didn't nice. wasn't specific about what to do yeah. you know she just she was uh afi is that way when you're doing your thesis even your cycle projects cycle projects in the first year of afi you literally, uh, you know, you have crew kind of built in if you can grab them because we have all these cinematographers that will crew for you. We're bound to. We have to, you know. Yeah. But your thesis project, you're kind of on your own. Right. <laughs> so right. you're just calling, you're just cold calling people that you get wow. references of and you're trying to get as much crew as possible to serve the show. And like you got one guy on Monday and you got another two people, you know, to come in Tuesday yeah. and Wednesday. You know, it is. it's the classic indie um situation yeah how you cobble it together yeah and so you met darren aronofsky at afi you guys day one sat next to him front row uh, wow i didn't know that part <laughs> yeah at the mark goodson's uh theater i remember that day very vividly because we were watching everybody's work that they submitted to get into the school and um oh they do that that's interesting that was fucked up man wow talk about yeah. it's like put a spotlight on you and 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 and, and do they do they like dissect it and stuff? Do no, they, not at all. Oh, okay, it's just no. everybody gets embarrassed publicly to start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a public dress down of everybody. <laughs> right. But you only you only feel it yourself. You know what I mean? Of course, you feel like everybody else is comfortable in their own skin, which is not true. Yes, um, but well, uh, that's such a perfect welcome to Hollywood, too, though, isn't it? <laughs> I get you know, looking back on it, you're probably right. But um, <laughs> but Darren's film comes up at 16 millimeter, black and white, not unlike Pie. Not as good looking because I wasn't there, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I it was um, it was just stunning. Like he was the far and above the most um, um, accomplished. Just just you could see he had vision. Basically, did he feel? Did he feel that way? Did, or was he like everybody else? And he also felt like dressed down and like I'm not up to snuff. Do you did you get the sense that he he had a feeling he was holding aces? You know. Um. Yes. I mean, I think, I think he, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't, I didn't sense it at the time, but, uh, he definitely, I mean, how could you not when you right. saw everybody else's stuff, you know? Right. And mine, and was, you... mine was like two super eight films, like, uh, one grainy black and white one and one crazy. I, I, although I liked the look of it was, a was 60 millimeter ectochrome color. Um, but it's still, it paled in, in comparison, you know? Yeah. And so how did you guys, what was the connection? How did you connect besides for sitting next to each other? Well, it's an interesting story. That was, uh, so when we, when we look back at that day, we're like, who was that guy sitting next to us? And he always asked me the same fucking question. And I said, it's Roberto <laughs> Fonseca. He, oh, the Spanish guy. I'm like, yeah. He said, you've asked me that like 10 times. It's, like, it's always, it's always going to be Roberto Fonseca. Write it down. <laughs> <laughs> how, how is Roberto Fonseca doing? Or do we? I don't know. I, 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 you lose touch. It's been yes, so long. Sure, but so tell me the interesting story. Um, well, okay. So first cycle at AFI. There's three cycles. At least at this time, I'm only speaking for this time because sure. I know it's changed a lot. But three cycle projects in the first year. The first one, they limit the amount of people you can choose from. You know, they, so they they pair you up in uh, groups of four, like. 
there's four directors to choose from and there's four cinematographers. You know, in the second and third cycle, you could choose throughout the whole class to, who to work with. So that wasn't a big deal. But what happened was in um, one of the cinematographers who was in my group asked me to operate her film. Uh, her, her name was Lisa Stoll, great lady. She uh, was shooting for Darren. And Darren said no, because I didn't have as much experience as his. We had another cinematographer who was um, a, a union operator. And he was just going back to school because he didn't oh, wow. step up the DP. And he want, he was dead set on having him because he wanted the union operator. I'm like, sure. okay, I get that. So I wasn't that hurt that at that time. But I was sure. really pissed off. <laughs> I really wanted I really wanted to do it, you know? Yeah. Um so uh when it came to second cycle, you could choose anybody. And um Darren had asked, Darren came and asked me. He was actually the second person to ask me to shoot his movie, and I was talking to another person. And I said, you know what? I'll get back to you. He was. He came into the cinematography class to ask me while I was on stage shooting some kind of exercise, and he asked me if I would shoot his film. And I said, "You know what, man? Can I get back to you? Because you know, I sort of told uh, Jim I'd I'd do his. So um, let's so talk you, later." You big time timed him. <laughs> the first I, I, I kind of yeah, I kind of did. I was and um, I was just like uh, it was just like I you know look I forgive but I don't forget and. Uh, <laughs> So I go, <laughs> I go, I'm going by my merry way and I get caught in the, um, in a building by the producer, Eric Watson, who, you know, he was a producer of Protozoa. He ended up producing pie directly yeah. in the fountain, the fountain. So he was part of the team early on. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's the reason why Darren and I worked together because Eric and I had become friends and from a, a sort of a different, um, background, you know, uh, and you look, we we all got along because we just we were the same age, you know, we we're the same age yeah. group, and there's a lot of people older than us, and we were sort of, um, you know, we just we were kind of uh, socially friends. But the air came up and said, like, "Are you fucking crazy?" It's <laughs> like you told me fucking three weeks ago he's the best filmmaker here, and you're gonna fucking tell him you're gonna work with Jim. And I said, "You know, fuck that guy." And then Eric just like, you got to calm down. You just, just <laughs> you got to so calm down. Like, you, listen to was, what you, you're doing. Yeah, yeah. The rest is history. Did you have dem- – you must have demonstrated at that point to a lot of people that you were a skilled cinematographer that they wanted to work with too. I mean, you're leaving that part out, but I feel like that that's almost implied by this story, right? Because if there – multiple people were coming to you, right, and you were shooting a lot, like you were kind of finding your groove – well, you know what's funny? It's it's like uh, it's like the real world. It's like a microcosm of the real world, real world, a petri dish of it. Because mm-hmm. um, you know there are some people who never approached me because they I just didn't fit what they what they liked about films. Uh, you know? And yeah. cinematographers are like, uh, you know, there it's like you're choosing the person who's going to design your house in a way. Yes. You know, yes. Um, so it's about uh, and I was you know I was I was really young. You know, my um, maybe I had one pitch you know, to use the sports uh, uh, metaphor yeah. uh, in- instead of maybe the five or six I might have now. You know? Got it. Yeah. So, um, but Darren, you know, my first cycle, what there was, regard, you know, was a uh, screen in front of the, uh, obviously the whole class. And I was working with a director named Pam Corky that uh, was a perfect name for this woman. She was, she's such an interesting filmmaker um, and interesting ideas. We made this sort of fetish film about fifties housewives and, um, yeah. And we went there, you know, it was black and white, multiple shadows, sort of emulating, you know, like a 50s um, sort of instructional video. And it looked like nothing, you know, 
it, we didn't play it straight. And I think Darren appreciated that we didn't play it straight, or and I didn't play it straight. So he wanted something like that for for uh, yeah. That's the kind of mentality he wanted for his second cycle. So that's kind of I guess where that comes from. And so you know, eventually, like we'll skip ahead a little bit, but like you guys made pie. Um, yeah. Tell me about like I mean, and that's was like like I remember young i'm you know a little bit younger i remember going into a theater and seeing pie and being like mind blown you know like a lot of people were you guys introduced a look a style and everything about it like black and white reversal um the high contrast it was just like eye-opening for the community um and obviously kind of started you guys off both of you uh, both together and separately can you tell me a little bit about like what how did it happen? Like you get out of school and you start thinking about what the projects you guys will do are like, what went from I'm a film school graduate to like, we're making this movie like for very little money. You know, we, we stayed in touch and we became close friends. So um, we talk about, you know, he wrote, we, I remember sitting in his apartment, we talk about screenplays that he wrote and sort of analyzing from a narrative point of view and already starting to work in, um, a way of thinking about how to make movies uh, together or just in general. Right. And um, he decided to make pie. He wrote pie and he decided to make pie. So he, he was in LA at the time and he moved back after our um, last year at uh, AFI. And um, did he know, I'm sorry to cut off, but cause no. I want to hear where you're going, but did he know he was going to do a, sm it was going to be small. Cause at that time it yes, was like, absolutely. yeah. So you knew it was his mission and the idea of, with you guys were talking about, like we want to do our thing on the small scale. Pie was a exercise of uh, creating something out of what we did. It did not have. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's black and white because um, I could afford gel for the windows because right. you know, in film, you can't just change the color temperature and sort of blend two color temperatures together. And at the time, film stocks really accentuated one color temperature versus another color temperature. Sometimes they're really beautiful results, like in all Chris Doyle's work in early one car wide, but, um, or a film like Christian F. So it was born out of those types of things. I mean, we literally got the biggest light I had was a 2K for now that had a huge dent in it, hardly ever used it. <laughs> I, I literally put together a lighting package uh, from Home Depot and, um, you know, clip lights and whatnot and getting globes from um, shoots that I was working on as an electrician. Like I That's did MR-16s so awesome. and PAR-20s. And I, I just shipped. I went to New York and um, I had I moved in with him. We were staying in the in Hell's Kitchen and um, and I slept above a kitchen. Uh, I was in a loft above a kitchen. I used to crawl up there every night. But I had I literally had this entire um, little little uh, lighting packages I used to light the all, all of Max Cohen's apartment. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so the stock choice and stuff was like reflective of what you, like you said, what you did not have. Well, black and white was, and then um, another aspect of it was we were sort of inspired by a film called let's get lost. Uh, Chet Baker documentary that Bruce Weber mm -hmm. did in black and white reversal. So I made a call to um, Bono film labs. Cause I found out that that's where they process that. And I, you don't know, talk to uh I believe it was Joe Bono uh, who was still there, still around. And uh, it was just, I was just uh, from a technical standpoint and just a visual standpoint was blown away by it because uh, the black and white, you know, black and white uh, negatives, one thing, plus X and tri X, but yeah. But uh, when you got into the reversal, you know, I didn't know what I was in store for, but I was, I was just amazed by the look of it. So 
and Darren, not, and that was just a, yet another layer of technique that we could apply without having to get more crew necessarily or right. you know, more gear. So, so we could instantly stylize the film in a way. And, you know, we had nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. we could, we could have shot it on uh, pixel vision and, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, and we borrowed the camera from a friend of his sister. Uh, wow. maybe we gave him a little bit of money, but we how didn't long did the money. shoot go? What it's funny. It was a 20, I think it was a 20 day shoot or something. Or 20. Yeah. It was like a little over 20 days, but Darren and I worked every day, all the stuff that you see, uh, you know, running through Chinatown and that was all me and a Bolex and Darren and Sean. Yeah. You know, at one point we were running down the middle of Canal Street and I think we were near, um, right before, just east of Broadway, we take a turn, we're in an intersection, almost get hit by a car, <laughs> run around a cab and we land on the street corner next to a cop and we got the story cam attached to Sean it's on his back and I'm holding it and we looked ridiculous. And the cop just said, Hey, do me a favor. Don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> and me and Sean, were just looked at each other. like, we got to go find Darren. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like, you know, I know for our, a lot of our audiences younger, the context of this, like they couldn't, you guys couldn't review the footage. Like this was a very different way of filmmaking than anyone is used to now. Like you didn't know what you got, right? You didn't know how it was going to work or look all together because you were shooting it on film stock. Like, so was there a lot of like looking at stuff later or getting, getting stuff and being like, Oh man, this is great. Or this, oh, we're not like, this isn't going to work. Like was, was it pretty much what you'd expected? We couldn't even afford transfer. I wow. mean, we, we literally didn't get, we didn't see anything until about our five days in. Wow. We got the film back. It's sitting in the apartment. I, uh, I had a, I brought, I got a 16 millimeter projector and from my loft, I projected across, I, you know, I just said, you know, I'm just going to, and it's our negative and our print. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> so I'm just like, fuck it. Should I put this up? And I just want to see. Right. How well, yeah, you needed to know, right? So, um, you know, I didn't. I just like I was by myself. I just strung it up and took a look at it, and then I, I like watched a bit of it, and then I stopped the projector. And on, you know, I was just like, "Fuck, this is I'm gonna fuck this thing up," you know. So, but it was I was like, "Wow," you know, this is this. I don't know if this is good, but it's something different. Yeah, <laughs> that was definitely true. And so, like everything that happened with it, obviously hard to predict or anticipate, and it sort of set you on on the path, right? Um, well, we didn't, you know, we made that film. It was, we just wanted to make a film. Darren just wanted to make a film. And sure. he had been, uh, he and Eric had done previous to it, you know, um, they, you know, done the Sundance rounds and, uh, you know, done a, a lot of meeting people, you know, like, um, the Sundance, uh, like Trevor at Sundance, who used to be at Sundance. Um, right. Uh, and meeting producers and what you know, just just meeting people that are. So he'd gotten his. He'd kind of planted some roots in the community in the indie world. So he kind yeah. of knew the route. Made some connections. Yeah. And um, you know, and people who introduced us to people, and we got you know, there's two basically two financiers of the film. When you think about financiers, like I look back at now, I could have find right now. I could have financed by. <laughs> 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 and it's like we were. They were held in such high esteem. These two guys. Um, and I mean, no disrespect, but I'm like, it was a $30,000 fucking dollar movie. I mean, come on. But at the time, I'm like, hey, man, thank you so much. Like, <laughs> it was like Jeff Bezos at the time, right? So, it was, yeah, exactly. 
exactly. And I'm like, you know, what are, what are we doing? And they were so green at the time too, right? That it's just like anybody who's given us money. And then we had that scheme. Uh, you know, we I don't know. If, I mean, I'm sure maybe maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. But they had this scheme where we uh, every everybody we knew we had to reach out to. It was kind of like a, a modern day. It's like a, with source funding. You know, yes, yes, everybody. If we can get a hundred dollars from this many people, we'll yes. have this much money. And we did. We we got a hundred dollars from all sorts of people. Yeah, and, grassroots. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just crazy. I was Eric and I and Darren all lived in the same apartment. Darren always wanted the extra thirty minutes of sleep, so Darren, Eric and I had to get together, and we would actually jump in a um, our passenger van. We'd have to go walk to a parking lot, get our passenger van, which had all our gear in it, and then drive to set every day. <laughs> And I'm like, fuck, man, this is, it was just, yeah. it was just kind of a, it was a grind. Yeah. But it, but it paid off. The movie's amazing. And, and Oh, what I was going to say is that we just thought it was going to be a, a midnight movie. That was our goal. Sure. Yeah. We're like, fuck, man, if we can get to Sundance, we just wanted to get into Sundance. Yeah. And I remember being on a plane. I was, I was leaving New York on a, I was doing a music video. I got on the plane. I get a call from Darren and he's shit face drunk. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, you didn't hear you didn't hear, and all of a sudden everybody's yelling. I hear the voices of Eric Watson. I hear the voices of Scott Franklin, and he's like, "We got it in Sundance." I'm like, "Cool, it's like midnight." And like, "No, we're in competition." <laughs> like, "Holy wow. shit, what?" Wow. So to this day, one of my favorite uh, moments of my career was sitting in the Eccles Theater, uh, um, and getting a standing ovation for that movie. That is, yeah, that's and it's that's that's pretty unique and pretty amazing. And you knew, did you, did you just have a feeling like, Oh man, like what's next? Like this, this roller coaster is just starting, you know? No, no, no. I, didn't. <laughs> I didn't, you know, from my perspective as a cinematographer, it's like, there's so much to learn, you know, and sure. today there's still so much to learn. And I, it was a black and white movie. It was kind of, um, it was, it was a stunt really, you know, it, yes. from a cinematographer's perspective, it was, it was a stunt. What can I really do? I hadn't proven what I could really do yet. Well, I mean, and that brings me to it was not very long before Requiem for a Dream. So, like, how how quickly did you guys um, jump into that? Like, how was it? Or was it kind of on his mind? The book, and was he writing? Or and it, it, because that I feel like that also visually, you you definitely that film demonstrates what you're cap more what you're capable of as a dp right you had more access like tell me a little bit about like where where that one started from and and jumping into that and and sort of cutting your teeth more well it you know i had shot the, the film i shot after uh, pie was a, a film for a classmate of ours his name's rob schmidt at uh, we shot in new york it was called uh, the ti the title now is speed of life it was called saturn at the time and it was a, it was actually a film he had he had submitted to um, he had made when he was at SUNY Purchase. Uh, so Rob was a friend of Darren's, and I shot. I ended up um, doing Rob's film in color, thirty-five millimeter, which was, uh, and I that's where I really started to feel um, like I was coming into my own as a cinematographer. And you had a fuller, bigger crew, I assume. It wasn't just you running down the street with a Bolex. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a bigger crew, people, um, but people. It was just it was a similar idea to Pi, though. Yeah, um, it was super low budget, but we had more money um, than obviously the pie did, but not much. It still wasn't um, 
you know, it's still, I don't think, uh, you know, they, they have this thing, they had this thing in New York, they have different scales for, and tiers for um, rates, union rates. Sure. And the lowest one, I think, was called East Coast Council, which is like a super low budget film that everybody wants to stay away from and, unless you're um, really starting out. We were lower than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, even on the second one. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was like, I was just elated. I was shooting, you know, yeah. I love Rob, and it was a different kind of movie. Um, was, you know, a slower pace and, um, it, it was just a depa- nice departure to, as a DP to work, you know, go from Darren to Rob, you know? Yeah. And, um, so there was a lot of things that I enjoyed about it. And I, I still, it was one of my favorite experiences in making movies to this day because it had that atmosphere of pie, but it wasn't as, um, desperate. It, it wasn't so, as desperate, yeah. right. Uh, or just, just, just completely, you know. There was a sort of an outlaw atmosphere to what we were doing up by. Sure, and, yeah. And this this seemed a little more like okay, you know, we might not have money, but you know, everything's sort of moving in a right kind of a, a direction. And some people were and people were getting paid very little, but they were getting paid. Right. But uh, so it felt better, uh, less of a burden. Like I, you know, when you're when people are working for free, and anybody who's had that experience on films, I'm afraid to ask for a light. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Yes, I know, man. I know. So. uh I did that film, and oddly, you know, just as a side, uh, Rachel Morrison was a camera PA on that. Oh wow! Yeah, so I Crazy. met Rachel way back then, and, um, and and you know, we've been friends ever since. But the uh, but that sort of led to. I don't think Requiem would have looked the way it did unless I had that experience of making. Sure. That film, so. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense because you had to have that like thirty-five color experience once, right? With well, this- I well, you know, I, I shot a lot of music videos, so I was shooting thirty-five already. But, yeah. Oh, um, okay. There's something different about shooting a, 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 a film. Yeah. Like every day connects to the the day before, and sure. um, you know what you're doing is a guide in the consistency and what you're trying to craft is something. It's a it's sculpture. Whereas, um, you know, music videos sometimes become um, sort of a, a, it's a different animal altogether. You know, it's, it's right. you can always cut back to the band, <laughs> right? you know, if the, if the other stuff doesn't work out. Um, so, you know, when we came to Requiem, Darren loved the way uh, Saturn looked or Speed of Life. Yeah. And um, we, we were just excited. You know, we got $5 million to shoot Requiem for a Dream. And... Um, stars like you know he was looking at i mean you know it's this devastatingly again like extremely innovative movie like game changer at the moment um changed everybody's careers but also like it was so innovative like i i'm not just in tone but just the look like like how what were the inspiration where did it come from like you guys once again like even the pie was super innovative but some of that was like necessity is the mother of invention like with with Requiem, you had a bigger canvas and more tools to work with, and you delivered again something that's like stands the test of time is unique. Where did it come from? Like, how did you guys plan it out? The look. I mean, it just it came from everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're still young. We're really, you know, really young. We had, we're still hungry. Um, not that we're not hungry now, but it's it's a different animal. You you know, it's like I it's it's akin to. Um, you know, being a band early, you know, you just have more punk rock in you. Yes. Right? And you and you're just like, you know what, you know, this just make it louder here or, or just make everything fucking loud, you know? <laughs> There's that, a funny quote I read from from you about it that I wanna 
I want to share back with you and, and hear your get more on it. But you said at one point there was a shot where he's injecting into a, a wound and and he asks you, uh, Darren Aronofsky asks you, like, is this too much? And you said yeah. the quote of you is like, you're asking me this now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, was that was there a sense the whole way going through the film of like, we're really pushing boundaries here, but but fuck it. Was that like <laughs> or like, tell me, like, what was that like? Look, making Requiem was kind of like uh, paying homage to the gods of filmmaking. You know, we we uh, I, we don't I don't think we were thinking we were making anything innovative. Uh, we were just using sort of our experiences and learning narrative filmmaking from AFI, taking in all our, the visual references from, um, um, you know, from uh, from, uh, you know, as as young people who don't have all of life's burdens upon them yet. You know, um, and we just had all the time to listen to everything, to watch everything. And um, we just had all this energy to apply it. And, you know, so the technique, all the technique is layered. It's super layered in the film. Uh, I retimed it for the um, anniversary of this 4K release and revisiting it and go, well, you know, there's a lot of layering of technique in whether, you know, um, it, throughout the entire movie, you know, whether it's a split screen or a, a, a multiple exposure or it's a, a you know, um, a shutter gag, fisheye lens, uh, you know, a motion control time lapse, you know, yes. <laughs> we're yes. just layering one thing after another. It's really like someone it's it's almost like hearing you lay it back. Like it's like you went to the, the movie buffet with a really big plate and you just grabbed a little bit of a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's yeah, but the movie or, it's like. more about ingredients and like how to sure. co- coalesce it into a meal that actually tastes good. It's yeah. kind of like a good metaphor, but you know, it, but we were just, it was actually paying homage to like, you know, like literally the Mount Rushmore filmmakers like Polanski and Kurosawa and sort of the subjectivity and the expressionism of filmmakers that we appreciated um, is basically, you know, how we, looking back on it's kind of how we approached it because it wasn't like, Nobody's ever seen this before. I felt like we've seen it before because we wouldn't even have done it. Yeah. <laughs> we, yes. Yeah. You know, we just see. We would just say, you know, oh, that's cool. That's a cool idea. You know. You know. Um, you know what? You know, I I started a career in music videos at that time, and um, I was just devouring every single one I could see. You know. Yeah. On MTV. You know, it had and, some and, some of that music videos editing style too like and it was that part of the the way you were shooting it was thinking like yeah this is going to get kind of chopped up this way or paced this way you know like well yeah i mean um yeah we did this thing um in uh, our second cycle project that darren called the hip-hop montage because it was a quick cut montage of things and then we yeah. used it we used it on all the you know the rolling of the joint the yeah pills and um the lighter and <clears throat> uh, so we, we, you know, we, we knew that we were going to take a technique we used in film school and apply it to the movie. Um, but then, you know, just there was just a lot. I keep looking back on all the little things that we would, you know, we were doing at the time. But we always tried to apply it. The, 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 the thing for us was how do we apply this technique so it's not meaningless? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. You know, it was I part mean, of your story. Yeah. And the screenplay was already marked by uh, chapter headings of summer fall and winter so for me when you look at the film i mean and one of the things i'm proud of is a sort of uh this consistent movement from the beginning of the film to the end where it starts out warm bit of a cliche warm summer um 
going into a fall, a cool fall, and then into sort of this green despair of winter. Yeah. Um, that was, and you know, I, I just was reminded of this uh, in a previous uh, conversation was, you know, I, I was pull processing the stock in the first act. And then I started to push one. Can on you, can you, start, can you explain that to, cause I think some of our audience probably does, won't understand what that means having not worked with film necessarily. Like what is, what is pull process? Well, pull process is basically uh, <clears throat> when you shoot a piece of negative, you are going to process it and you put it into the, uh, go to the lab and you process it so that you can get your image. It's basically like uh, uh, you go through a chemical process sure. where the film is basically developed. And, um, you know, most, a lot of times you just develop it normal. So you shoot it normally, you look at the can of film and it says, uh, it has an ISO or an ASA on the can. It's actually ISO. And, um, that tells you the sensitivity of that film stock and you, you base your exposures off of that. And then you send it to the lab when you process normal, in theory, it comes out the way you expected it. Right. (laughs) But, um, when you pull, uh, you're actually... When you pull process, that means you're actually putting it in the developer for less time. So what you're getting is, in theory, if you exposed it normally, you're getting something that's underexposed a little bit. Right. But what I was doing was overexposing the negative and pulling it so that uh, in, in an effort actually to um, soften the color. Yeah. Uh, because it would be less saturated. So... Um, so back then, that's just just context for everybody. Like that's like that's how you would now it would be like I don't know a filter or a LUT or something. But back then, it was just you. It was how you shot it in conjunction with how you processed it would give you yeah. a desired result. Yes, and then uh, consequently, in, in the fall, I pushed one, and in the winter, I pushed two. Nice. And what that is is you putting it in the processing for longer. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and there's different ways to do that based on how you expose your negative. But uh, the effort there was to try to get more grain as we went into the rest of the film. So the so film gets grainier. So the film gets grainier. Yeah. And that was part of your guys, you you and Darren, sort of like, this is going to be the plan, right? Yeah. And Darren's the type of filmmaker. He likes to know exactly what everybody's doing, not just myself, but uh, production designer, all the choices down, you know, prop master, uh, costumes, um, hair, makeup, wardrobe. Um, yeah. You know, they, every everything's like, what do you? So, what's your plan here? What's yeah. going? Here? And he wants to. He's just a insanely um, avid contributor. I mean, a collaborator uh, that way because he just wants to make sure. And um, I think now it's easier, but early in the early days, it was just like, look, I this is a this is a this is a collection of craft, you know, that has to uh, fit inside the box that he's creating and the vision. So. He just early on, he just he did all all the work to he still does, but he did all the work to make, you know, he's very sophisticated that way to make sure yeah. everybody fit in the vision. And you've I'm sure because you've shot so many films since then, you've developed a lot of shorthand in terms of what you guys are doing. But, you know, this is because here's a question. I don't know if you how you can answer, it, but I'm so curious. You've been able to personally, whether you're working with him or, or with other filmmakers, because you've worked with Spike Lee, you've worked with, you know, a lot of people, John Favreau, you've stayed, how do you stay cool? I, and I mean that like, you've never lost a freshness, like, you know, shooting things like from Iron Man, which launches Avengers, basically, or <laughs> shooting straight out of Compton, which even though it's, it's, it's about another era, it's like super 
relevant and and edgy in its own way like you know you never went stale like how do you do that is that a what's the effort to be like how do you stay connected to the pulse you know as of as visually no it's an interesting question i <clears throat> i mean it, it all stems from a um, a love of popular culture really you know uh it's like, uh, how did Bowie stay? I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Bowie. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good, but I know, but it's a good point because he did, but there's not many people who can continue. Cause you talk about it like, yeah, in the early days when we were doing this, but it's like, but the stuff you've done later stayed innovative and cool, which he's, it's a good point. So did he, I just, I've not got, I've not, I haven't grown tired of the life. Yeah. You know, I haven't grown tired of it. I still love, I love, um, Maybe I don't soak in as much of it as I'd like because of time and commitment, but I still, uh, you know, when I see a good image, I'm just, I, I just like stare at it. You know, I'm, I, I love it. If I hear a good piece of music, I, I love it. And I, you know, I just, I, I use my memory um, of past events and I use, um, you know, I use my uh, uh, sort of dedication to whatever the narrative is to apply ideas. And I, and I guess the relevant thing comes from, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how uh, stylistically things stay relevant as much as I think uh, because I don't deviate from uh, I don't I don't uh, maybe it, uh, I guess I, I just try not to choose style over substance. And hmm. I start with substance first. You you let the story like in the case dictate of, what the technique will be. Yeah. yeah, and but you're it feels like you're always looking for technique. I don't know how else to put it, but like it seems like whatever you shoot, like all your movies, there's something there where you're trying something, or you're you know like it, like visually they're never similar, they're never static. I don't know. It's uh it's, it's a, a struggle. To be honest with you. Yeah, can you? It tell is me a struggle because you don't you don't want to repeat yourself, and sometimes you end up repeating yourself. And, um, you know, the, the better you get at your craft and the, you start to get little, um, the subtleties get louder to you, <laughs> but they remain subtle to other people, you know, some, you know, things that, and, uh, but I, I don't know, I guess, um, I still listen to the music really loud, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I was going to say music is a big part of your work. I mean, music videos, there's a musical quality to a lot of the the style, but also a lot of movies that have to do with music. I mean, have you been drawn to that uh, on purpose or? I think it's just part of my personality. Really. Yeah. Um, and music videos are, you know, I, uh, I still love them. I don't see them as much. Uh, you sort of have to dig around, you know, I hate watching stuff on my computer. So, but you know, when it comes to music videos, I'm always watching stuff on my computer. And um, uh, I, yeah, I do this uh, as much as I could, you know, um, I, I'd be on jury, uh, camera images, jury for music videos because I just love so good. It's my, one of my favorite things. They send me a, they literally send me a, a, a spreadsheet of all the videos that are up in contention and I get to watch them all. Yeah. <laughs> like it's one of my favorite things. I just sit there and I just devour them. I wonder as you say that if the, if the availability and like the culture in the 80s and 90s of music videos and MTV helped a lot of people get more, like you said, punk about filmmaking and cinematography because there was all that cool stuff being done in kind of those like one shots that you could incorporate because now that's not really part of the, the, the landscape as much. You know, we don't all have access to that all the time. The MTV is not playing videos. <laughs> well, I mean, there, it's funny because it's like my generation um, – of cinematographers, you know, Rodrigo, uh, Seamus, and you know, the, we all came from that world. We, uh, our, our background wasn't documentaries like our previous uh, generation. You know? Yeah. Our, our background was in 
uh, music videos, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, and that was, it is what it is. It's like we were influenced by, um, you know, having lack of a narrative and um, just, uh, it's like a music video was kind of like uh, you're taking cinematography and filmmaking and it's basically part of what they're doing in the studio. Yeah. You know, layering samples and, um, and, um, and, and fine tuning uh, different, different um, instruments. So we we're just when it comes to the music video, we're sort of this one like last layer of that, you know. And and then there are uh, a lot of good ones, not a lot of great great ones, but there are some. I mean, they're they're so fun to watch um, from a cinematographer standpoint and a filmmaker standpoint. It gives you ideas as long as you. It's for me again. It's just, it's long, and this is something that goes back to the American Film Institute. Is that you know if uh, if your eye the ball is actually the story then and you keep um, conscious of it then uh, no matter how outlandish the technique it could um, it could definitely um, work resonate yeah. it's the only way it's going to resonate like if, yeah. if i if i pulled off the coolest thing uh, a cool shot like that it, it it just takes you a while i remember back in the day when you know uh, people used to cut real i used to pedal my three quarter inch tape all over town <laughs> and um I would shoot something and somebody would say something like, that's going to be a great shot for your reel. And I was just like, I would always say, it's like, it's not, if it's not, if the whole thing isn't good, it's not going on the reel. Yeah. You know, cause I, it's, what's the fucking point of one good shot? Yeah. You know, the whole movie's got to be good Yeah. for it to be worth showing anybody. Yeah. It's like, how do you do a great job on the over the shoulder, you know, classic two shot thing or dirty single as well as the crazy crane shot or the or the you know with spike lee like when the camera and the guy are moving like like those things that are call attention to themselves but then there's those little things that just don't right that also have to work yeah um, i i'm yeah. curious like you know you've you've worked at the top of of the industry through like the major major technological shift like so going from film like talking about black and white reversal and pushing and or pulling and stuff like that to you know the digital age cgi everything's digital like do you still i guess two things um do you still like to shoot film sometimes do you ever have the opportunity or and how has that shifted how have you maintained your like this is how i work with the medium as the mediums changed you know like do you approach digital the same way um, yes and no. I mean, it, obviously, it's different. Uh, um, there's more gack that goes with it. You know, uh, even if you say you don't even shoot with a DIT, you're still like monitoring, like metering comes from like a waveform monitor, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still light with a light meter because I, you know, when you do narrative films, you, you know, you, you have the curse of coverage. And uh, to maintain that consistency, I use a light meter because that's how I learned to do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, just to keep levels consistent and then and, and, and make it consistent throughout the day. So I just I you know, that's just part of the technique and craft. You know, I, I resisted uh, I resisted digital as long as I could. My first digital film was Ruby Sparks uh, with Jonathan Dayton, and Valerie Ferris. Lovely, 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 awesome people and great experience. But I didn't love the cameras like early Alexa first <clears throat> um, or second generation. I just was, you know, just didn't. And they didn't love it either when they looked at the DI. It just didn't like it lacked something. It wasn't just grain; it was contrast, you know. Yeah. Was, and um, 
I think the camera and digital technology informed a whole generation of cinematography. You know, when you look at sort of the trend of sort of the soft, uh, sort of a softer image. Yeah. You know, um, which is, hey, there's a lot of beautiful stuff like that. But um, yeah, but like, I guess, because talking about you and your work, you still find your edge, right? Or, or where, like, you know, thinking about, so after you switch to, to the digital format, you still, you know, Mother, A Star is Born, Venom. Um, lots of movies that have, you know, that straight out of Compton. Like, so once you switched, like, what did you do to adjust to find your, you know? Well, it's kind of been an evolution, really. Of, uh, uh, you know, I, for a long time, I didn't use a LUT. And the reason I didn't use a LUT, because I kind of liked how sensitive the camera was. It was blowing me away that I put it outside at night. And it was, yeah. oh, it was great. I got a starting point right here, you know. But then I've gone full circle because then I... Um, you know, you get you start to look at the image and you start working off of a, an image. And um, I start to work, go back to how I used to work a little bit and sort of um, just start lighting without looking at the monitor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, that's become better. And then using a lot. What you know, then I discovered, I, you know, I was coloring. A, a, I think it was Money Monster. And um, I was talking to somebody at eFilm about and I, I was always badgering them because um, I've worked with a, a colorist uh, named Mitch Paulson, and um, he colors everything for Roger Deakins. So I said, hey, Mitch, um, any chance I could see Roger's LUT? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mitch is like, I can't do that. I, I'm sorry. I can't. That's okay. top secret. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. No, I, I understand. I completely understand. Yeah. So then I found the color scientist that he filmed, and I'm, I'm coloring now with Tim Stippen. We're doing Money Monster. Tim Stippen did Black Swan with me. And, yeah. And Noah. Anyway, so uh, I said, um, his name's Jay-Z. I said, Jay-Z, um, I got a question for you. We call him up. And I was telling Tim, he's like, you know what? I just want to see it. I just want to see what it looks like. <laughs> so uh, I called, we called Jay-Z on a speakerphone from the session. I'm like, well, you got to send us the fucking love. You just got to do it. <laughs> I'm not supposed to. You know, it's a German, uh, great, great accent. And he's like, I can't. Look, dude. Like, and then we're just badgering him. And he sends it. He sends a lot. And then, uh, <laughs> so persistence was the key. Yeah, but then I put it on my footage, and my, it was like it was like my stuff was like a stop and a half underexposed, or stop underexposed. I was like, "Holy shit, that's heavy!" Yeah, and I said, "I said, wow, you know what?" And then I all I instantly got interested. I'm like, "Wait a minute," you know, because I had been going through this process where I just I got you know you get you get spun when you're making a film. You keep looking at the monitor, and you you know the process is disjointed because you're walking back and forth. It's stupid. Yes, yes. Whereas I want to stay in one place, do the work. And then evaluate the image and make adjustments from there. So that that part, that just seeing it that one time, I was able to say, okay, this maybe not works for me, and it fucking works great for Roger, you yeah, know. Yeah. But like, I could do anything I want. So I started to uh, get more interested in making them myself, uh, you know, yeah. customizing a lot for myself. And I know a lot of people do that. It took me a while to get there. Yeah. Uh, but that's how I do it now. And now I'm able to stand on set knowing what I, you know, what ratios I've set for myself and how much contrast I have in, in the fucking image. And so someone and, somewhere is going to be like, I want to get Lee Batik's slut. Like, get, let me see. <laughs> Good luck because there's about seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny though, because from where we started with, um, you know, talking about you can't even really watch your footage from Pi because you don't want to screw up the one print you have to being being spun around because you're reviewing in real time and you're seeing so much that you can't just yeah. focus on it uh it's just such a massive change right 
Um, yeah, it is. Well, I, especially when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, like, but like, and and also because though, like, and I, you've given us so much, I really appreciate it. But I, I, we're a little over, and I wanted to ask. You know, I always end with this, like, for filmmakers who are coming up, for somebody out there who's like, I want to be a DP. Like, it's such a different world than it was um, when you started. But I wonder if there's anything you could, you know, advise or like, how would you tell someone these days to start? Or what would you tell them to focus on? Because, uh, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of people out there. Everybody has a camera now, right, on their phone. So, like, so people are shooting stuff. But what would you, your advice be to somebody who's like, who wants to make this their career? Well, you, gotta, you have to do two things at once. I think um, you, you, are, you instantly, if you want to make this a career, you have to be an instant multitasker. Um, you study. When I mean that, it's just like soaking in every bit of image and uh, art in the world uh, that, that that is attractive to you, and seek out more of it. Um, but also, um, you know, be a bit technical in terms of like uh, being an avid photographer or a, 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 you know somebody who captures a, a video or digital, and um, just and keep an eye on the light. So you're just training your eye and taste, and about you know you're just you're just uh, sort of shaping you know internally shaping yourself by practicing um because now you can practice you yeah know, that's when i came point. up you couldn't practice right um you could but you know it's expensive you know, 100 foot loads it's expensive you want to you know that's why i used you know early on i used to go to uh, there was a, a a magazine here and i forget it's backstage i think it was called i'd always look at the classifieds in the back and see if there's anybody looking for a dp and i did about three of these things and i was i was just looking for somebody who's going to pay for processing and film yeah you know but now you don't have to do that <laughs> yes um so i think uh, and the other benefit and this is um if you uh i want to be a dp you should shoot your stuff maybe uh but you should edit it too hmm. and the reason i say that is that then you understand what shots mean in the no shot can tell the same moment in time at the same time in the movie, only one shot at a time, really. So uh, what's the shot that would, so they give that, if you think about that, you know, you have to search for, if there's an important moment in your film, you know that the placement of the camera has to be at the right place. Cause it's not like if you find a better angle somewhere else, only one of those things can exist in the movie for that moment in time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after that, I would I would really suggest if you really want to be a cinematographer, it depends on what kind of cinematographer you want to be. I mean, if you if you, I, I want to shoot films, you try to get on as many sets as you can. You know, uh, whether you PA or into I mean, I'm talking about per, people, a person starting out. If yeah. you have the means to be able to just get on a set, do whatever you can just to observe. Um, it's going to be harder now in COVID. Um, yeah, because uh, access to the green zone is going to be tough. But um, honestly, uh, because I, you know, I was fortunate uh, to be on sets and, and sort of observe how sets are run, and um, it's it's just important for context because then uh, if you do get that opportunity, you're kind of well armed with the, the workings of the machine. Sure, like you're not you know how to behave professionally without you know. Or the order of things, yeah. you know, like um, uh, I used to always get bothered by how uh, early on in my career, all of my cabling was always uh, like, you know, stingers everywhere. There's not one level place to stand on because everything's it. Yeah. And I was always like, I'd walk onto somebody else's set and it's immaculate. I'm like, <laughs> oh. 
You know, I'm just, it's just uh, those yeah. little things. No, that, it's like a chef, like a chef at a certain level wants like a clean workspace, a clean kitchen and like exactly. everything put away. So they know where it is and they know what to get. And, you know, those things yeah. end up, they, the little, the seconds add up, right? The minutes, the clutter, like it all, it all factors into the fit, the ability to be creative and free. Um, well, and, and just, it's sort of an organizational thing. As a cinematographer, you got to be extremely organized. You can't be haphazard. I mean, shooting short form stuff is one thing. Shooting a beautiful shot, um, you know, of a person in a car through the window and seeing the reflection of trees in the sun. I've seen the shot about 10,000 times, <laughs> but it's still beautiful. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, placed in the right place, uh, very poignant. But like, <laughs> okay, so what if it's two people talking? It's like uh, how much of the scene can play in that shot? Yeah. You know, you got you to gotta know if, um, if to be a DP, you got to be conscious of um, the one thing that may, might start getting lost is that consistency of light. You know, you're taking a moment in time that may take you four hours to shoot, but it's got to look like it's happening within five minutes. Yeah. So um, that's you know. all great, all great stuff. I really like that you because you said earlier this thing about your you said the real like the great shot from my real like who cares if the rest of it stinks or if it's not in a context and i think you just explained a little bit better why that's true because a yeah. lot of people can get one great shot right how many people yeah. can string together the shots that tell the story and are also great <laughs> like that's that's well, the a, difference it, right yeah it's it's a responsibility uh, and a burden <laughs> you know you Coverage is like uh, how film most by and large, unless it's Ida, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah. But not every film is going to be able to be made that way. Yeah. One painting after another. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, hey, it's a pleasure to be on. I'm, uh, I'm, I was looking forward to someday being on. So. Uh, oh, well, you. it's you can come back anytime. Like next time you have a movie, <laughs> let me know. I, there's so much we didn't talk about that I would love to talk about with you um, from, you know, things like shooting Tyson and Kobe Bryant too. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. So I really, I'll tell you the story of Tyson putting his chest, his fist in my, uh, in my chest. <laughs> it was, it was huge. Really? What was it? Well, okay. Well, since we're talking about it now, quickly tell me like, what was that experience like? Well, we were just, we were doing, well, that was, uh, it was before I had worked with Mike uh, a few times, Iron Mike. Yeah. He, uh, but this was on a early days. I was doing a music video for a rapper named Cannabis. Okay. And, um, Mike Tyson um, was at the, we were on a long lens on a beach in LA. Uh, I forget which one. And um, the director was on a walkie to the uh, PA who was near Mike. And he, he wanted, um, his name's Chris Robinson, the director. He kept asking uh, Mike to run towards camera. And he ran, but it was just like, uh, he wasn't happy with the take, so he can't do it again. And <laughs> Tyson comes and he says, um, Tyson gets a radio, he's like, God damn it, Chris. If you make me do this one more fucking time, I'm going to come over there and beat, you, beat your ass. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Chris was just laughing his ass off because he knew Mike would never catch him because he was so far away. Yeah. And uh, he finally he finally gets back to me. <laughs> Chris is gone. And where's that motherfucking Chris? <laughs> and he sticks his fist in my chest. And it's I was like, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was a big, hey, scary man. <laughs> he's a sweetheart. Actually. Yeah, but I hear he's, he's a really dead. nice guy. But that yeah. just the 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 looming threat of a punch from Mike Tyson has to be pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, I just instantly, uh, it's like I wouldn't last a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much again, man. I really appreciate it. Have a great. Hey, day. nice to meet you, George. You too, man. Have a good be weekend. Well,
Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Remember to like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. No Film School is the name of the page, the Twitter account, the website, everything No Film School related. Head over to the website. We've got tons of stories up, new stories all the time. Listen to our weekly podcast where we cover everything happening in the news, myself along with Charles Hayne and assorted other guests, depending. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff happening on this podcast in general. We've had a lot of great interviews with cinematographers recently. Make sure and go back uh, and scroll through if you haven't. If you're just coming to this one, we've done ones with many notable DPs and filmmakers that I, I think have a lot of value. Uh, we've been very fortunate recently to get some people who are both just starting but also people who have been doing this for a long time and have stories to tell about sets and filmmakers that uh, are just part of the golden age, really, because some of the people we've interviewed are really connective tissue between our era right now and, and you know, Hollywood history. So tune in, stay tuned, uh, all that good stuff. And thanks so much for listening, as always. Mm-hmm.